From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, new insights into the pandemic and political polarization. People on the left and right put their trust in very different sources when it comes to COVID-19 information. Then our colleagues at Denverite find that spending more on police doesn't necessarily make a city safer. Later, when a drummer goes through cancer treatment. Percussion doesn't work in a hospital room, obviously, because you have people next door and then doctors trying to do their jobs, trying to save lives. And we dig out another old cookbook in our series, The Kitchen Shelf. This time, a dessert made from San Luis Valley potatoes. I thought that the brownies would be a little bit more fudge-like, a little bit more chewy, and it's really a little bit more cake-like. Oh. But they're very good. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It seems almost quaint now. Back in April, I asked if the pandemic might reduce political polarization. This was when people were howling nightly for healthcare workers, offering to get toilet paper for elderly neighbors. And while acts of kindness continue, we've seen just how partisan things can get around masks and limits on business. Well, there are new findings out this week on the pandemic and polarization from More in Common, which works to reduce polarization in some of the world's democracies. Research director Stephen Hawkins is based in Denver. And Stephen, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. You were the one I asked back in April if COVID-19 might represent some sort of healing moment. Does Does that seem absurd to you now? It was worth a shot, right? (laughs) <laughs> Back then, we were seeing in the early days that Congress was really cooperating together. Democrats and Republicans jumped on an, an early initiative to get economic funding and really rally to help the country out. And I think we concluded that interview with me saying it was too early to say. I'm glad that was my response because we haven't seen many promising signs since then. Your latest report focuses on the U.S. and six European countries, France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Poland, and uh, the UK. You do a mix of polling and interviewing. What trends are unique to the US when it comes to the pandemic? You know, things we don't see as dramatically maybe in other places. Well, unemployment has hit the United States much harder than in other countries. Almost half of Americans know someone who's lost their job that's much higher than in Europe. Um, Other countries have had a really mixed a mixed response and from their governments. Some countries are really thrilled with how well their their government has been able to implement policies, get, get everyone on the same page in terms of the threat. And so Germany and the Netherlands, for instance, are proud of their country. The United States isn't. Of the seven countries we studied, 70% of Americans are disappointed in the way the country has handled this crisis. And the other thing is the impact of COVID-19 has been to exacerbate divisions. And seven, uh, so sorry, twice as many Americans say that the country has become more divided than Europeans say that about their own countries. Mm. And so we see that whereas that had the potential to be a common threat that affected everyone the same and they could have served to sort of provide perspective and a common purpose for the country, that potential has been lost. And we now see deeper divisions and over 90% of Americans recognize those, those divisions and feel worried about them. In an election year, of course, which I'll ask you about in just a bit, 
I mean, as fractured as that sounds, it is fascinating that 70% of Americans don't see that the country's leaders have done a good job. That's an odd area, actually, of of, of agreement. Um, it, it seems that lots of people are displeased with... Is that national leadership? Do they feel differently about local leadership? Yes, and actually that's a trend that's not just true of the United States, but that carries across Europe. Everywhere we studied, we found that people were more pleased with their local leadership, more optimistic about things happening in their local communities, and more frustrated with the central national governments. I think that's often true. I mean, with issues beyond the pandemic, a sense that the government that is closest to you seems a bit friendlier than the one that might be further away. I am fascinated by what you found about trust in the U.S., who trusts whom, especially for COVID-19 information. A big difference here between liberals and conservatives. What did you find? This was probably the most striking finding of any in our study. We found that devoted conservatives and traditional conservatives, these categories we've formed of people who really um, are defined by their support for Trump, their conservatism, they overwhelmingly trust President Trump on information of COVID-19 far beyond their trust, certainly in the media, um, and more than their trust in medical experts and even their family and friends. Um, This is something which I think is also a defining feature of the United States is that the the informational space has really entered into a place of conflict in the United States, where really there is a contest between the media, broadly speaking, and President Trump for loyalty and trust. And among Trump's core base, Mm -hmm. there is almost a unanimous agreement that this crisis has really been politicized in a way by the media to pursue their own agenda. And that agenda is to make President Trump look bad, to damage his political prospects in November. And on the other hand, progressives and liberals, Democrats overwhelmingly say that they most trust the medical experts, that they still have quite a lot of trust in the media. Specifically, we know that they trust media sources like MSNBC and CNN. And they have no confidence in President Trump's depiction of what's happening with COVID-19. And so this this really has uh, put the United States in a challenging position because the stories that we believe about what are happening or what what is happening in the very biggest, broadest perspective in our country vary quite widely depending on where you are on the political spectrum. Listen, going into the pandemic, there was already distrust, especially on the right of the news media. So that, that doesn't strike me as like particularly new information. I think what is striking to me is that there's more trust among these devoted conservatives of the president than of medical experts. I just want to make sure that I heard that right. Yeah, that is right. I mean, among our devoted conservatives, um, nearly 100 percent of them said that they trusted President Trump on information about COVID-19 and experts from medicine and science have trust levels below 50%. So it's not just a a subtle difference. Uh, Let's go back to this idea of the election. Did did, did you ask Americans about that? Uh, Any specific questions there? 
Well, we did. And one of the most standard questions in polling, every survey asks this is, what is the key issue that the country should focus on the most? And this is things like immigration and crime. We found that securing a safe, or sorry, ensuring a safe and secure election was tied for first among a list of 20 other priorities. And that that was true on the left and of the right. So this election, and I'd never seen that before in my experience in polling over a decade. And so what that indicates to us is that the election is very much front of mind. The survey was conducted back in July. So this is now, um, you know, several, many months out from the national election. It's front of mind. Americans agree that there is going to be foreign interference in the election, not necessarily in affecting the ballot counting or the numbers of uh, or the, the actual execution of voting, but rather that there will be manipulation through social media and that there's likely going to be in one form or another some cooperation between foreign actors and campaigns. So Americans are really bracing themselves for a difficult November and anticipating that between now and the election day and even beyond, there's going to be a lot of turmoil, especially online. Hmm. And of course, there are lots of questions about how quickly we might get results on a national level. Um, so Stephen Hawkins, you you don't just swoop in and poll. You've developed relationships with voters across these countries, including our own uh, for a long time now, and you're you're interviewing them. You're getting a sense of what troubles them and what gives them hope. And why don't we spend the last minute on hope? Uh, any positive signs out of these conversations? Yeah. Well, one of the places where the United States stands out from the rest of the countries we studied here was actually an optimism about the power of the individual citizen. We found that 79% of Americans still believe that through their decisions and their actions, citizens can change society. That's higher than anywhere in Europe. And so the silver lining here of all of the difficulty of 2020 may be that through the mobilization and the protests that we've seen, whether you're in favor of the protests or not, what it has demonstrated is that we do still live in a democracy and we do still have the capacity to mobilize, to change the country, and that we do still get a say through our vote. And that's where I think people place a lot of hope is that we we are not powerless in this context. Stephen Hawkins of Denver is research director for the global nonprofit More in Common, which fights social fracturing. We'll be right back with police budgets and crime. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. Policing and jails have accounted for almost a third of Denver's budget over the last decade. But that hasn't necessarily resulted in a safer city, according to Denverites David Sachs. He's been reporting on this summer of protests and a recent rise in crime. And Dave, nice to see you. Hi, Ryan. 
There have been two key developments so far this week that we should mention. Denver's mayor proposed his 2021 budget. It would cut police funding. What are you hearing about that, first off? Well, in some ways, the mayor's doing exactly what protesters are demanding, though not nearly to the extent they're asking. So cutting Denver police funding by $6 million, or 2.4%, and expanding money for social services. But the mayor, he equates more police with a safer city and is adamant that the protests have nothing to do with this proposal. The reality is that it takes months, if not a year or more, to put an officer on the street. And so when we say we are cutting back training academies and we're going to train less um, individuals to join our police department, folks, we are setting back our ability to staff our police department, our ability to keep everyone safe in the city by years. Um, So this is a budgetary decision that we are making in consideration of a system of developing law enforcement in our city. So he's proposing some extra money to address homelessness and for the kind of mental and behavioral health interventions that reformers are asking for. Uh, It's a relatively modest amount, but it's significant because he is cutting pretty much everywhere else. Okay, so it stands out in that regard. And then the second event we should mention on Monday, Denver City Council rejected a two-year contract with the police union. Um, It was coincidental timing because the old contract was running out, not because the council was taking any kind of responsive action to the protesters or calls for reform. Uh, Why was it voted down, though, Dave? Well, in part because I think some officials weren't comfortable with the raise for officers in the current political climate. Um, But the agreement would have gotten rid of paid holidays for police officers next year, um, which would have helped save about $5 million. And the contract also would have given officers a guaranteed pay raise of nearly 3% in 2022. And that was the sticking point for most council members. They're concerned there's no way to know what the city's financial situation will be in two years because uh, the pandem- because of the pandemic and the slow economic recovery that we're expecting. Right. That's really one of the largest factors in all these conversations. What, what more did council members have to say about that? So Councilwoman Jamie Torres said guaranteeing a raise for police would be a very difficult decision to explain to her staff and others who are getting furloughed as we speak. And uh, here's what Councilman Paul Cashman said. As we look off into the future, it's a pipe dream to think that revenue will miraculously jump back to pre-pandemic proportions where money is flowing and we can be assured we can properly honor our workforce with the salary increases they need and deserve. To assure DPD a raise without the same assurance being given all city employees is simply not fair. Well, with the city rejecting that police agreement, what happens now? So the police union and the city officials will go back to the drawing board. They'll restart negotiations. Uh, The city attorney's office says an independent arbitrator uh, will be brought in if both sides cannot agree uh, fully on a deal. Let's talk about how all of this intersects with crime and public safety. Dave Sachs, you found that this year is on track to be one of Denver's most violent in recent memory. Uh, Yep, that's right. Um, so we'll say more about violent crime, the so, nature of that. Sure. Violent crime uh, like murder and rape and robbery has risen almost annually since 2009. Um, that's according to the National Incident-Based Reporting System, which the Denver Police Department uses to track crime. Uh, the city did see a slight dip in 2010 and 2018. 
What do we know about what's behind that trend? Well, many of the officials I spoke with for the story cited population growth as a reason. But crime per capita has essentially remained, remained steady uh, as, as the city has grown. So Mayor Michael, Mayor Michael Hancock blames rising crime in Denver on uh, forces that he says are out of his control. Things like meth and opioid addiction, uh, an influx of guns and problems with the educational system. I talked with Lisa Calderon. She's a criminal justice professor at Regis University and chief of staff to Councilwoman Candy Sedabaca. She also ran for Denver mayor last year. She said she's not surprised about an increase in crime, but said it's more important to look at what's driving those numbers. For example, domestic violence could be up because of family instability caused by rising housing costs and job loss. Mm. Here's Lisa Calderon. So that's not to excuse it, it's to understand how people are interacting and resolving problems when left to their own devices, but not enough social supports to deal with them. So what we've been relying on is the police as a mechanism for those social supports, and that's where it's failing. You report that DPD is the costliest part of the Department of Public Safety, which also includes firefighters, sheriff's deputies, Aside from the police-specific budget proposal that was just released, spending on law enforcement continues to increase. How, how much has it gone up? Last year, taxpayers spent more than $268 million on policing. Uh, that's about $90 million more than what was spent a decade earlier. And there are also 140 more Denver police officers on the force. Uh, to jail people, the city spent more than $156 million last year, and that's an increase of about $60 million over 10 years ago. Uh, but that, too, should be considered in the context of a growing city. Let's fold in the concept of police reform. Murphy Robinson, who's Denver's director of safety, has committed to transforming the police department, but says reducing the force isn't his goal. And a Denver police chief, Paul Pazin, also says he supports reforms in the department. So what does that look like? I mean, especially with the idea that the city overall is facing budget cuts. Sure. So Murphy Robinson says, you know, he thinks Denver can set a new precedent for what policing looks like in the country. But he says it doesn't negate the fact that the job of police officers is important, valuable, and necessary. He's quick to cite an explosion of violent crime this year. And Chief Pazin says DPD has changed its approach to nonviolent crimes. Things like drug possession, public drunkenness, property damage, and stealing from cars because there's a domino effect. Changes from those types of crime can result in jail time, which can lead to job insecurity, which can lead to home insecurity, which can lead to a higher recidivism rate. So Chief Pazin points to programs like the city's co-responders initiative, and it's supposed to divert low-level offenders away from jails and courts and towards social services by pairing mental health experts with cops. Oh. The latest data we have is from 2018, and the number of times co-responders provided an option other than jail has been small, about 1,700 in a city that has about 50,000 arrests a year. Um, but arrests were also down last year, and the chief credits co-responders with that. Pazin said he will build on those successes. Um, and the city also launched a STAR program. It's called the STAR program. It, it stands for Support Team Assisted Response. It routes some 911 calls to mental health professionals and a paramedic instead of uh, like an armed police officer. You know, the idea that one size doesn't fit all in a 911 call. Uh, but you found that the amount of money spent on these and other diversion programs really is small compared to 
the money spent on traditional policing. Right. Looking through 10 years of budgets, it was like a flip book. Um, the, 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 the grants, they come in big and large and then sort of dwindle over the next few years. Huh. So city budgets show the diversion dollars almost always come from these grants. And that means they're not guaranteed to last. So over the last 10 years, uh, the city's criminal justice system has used a few dozen grants for diversion programs. Um, the co-responding initiative I just mentioned got its largest annual grant yet in August, and that was $1.2 million. But that doesn't come close to the hundreds of millions of dollars invested by the city in the guns and badge approach. Just quickly, do you have an example of how police officers themselves are working to respond differently? Sure. I talked with Denver Police Police Sergeant Brian Conover, and he's in charge of the city's homeless outreach team. This is an eight-person group of officers whose beat focuses on helping the unhoused. And he joined the force to help people, he says. He said it it would be amazing if his budget could triple in size to hire more co-responders. He told me the department did provide specialized training because they don't have PhDs in psychology or counseling or mental health. And it makes sense. That type of work is not why police officers were invented. Mm. It's interesting that he's with the homeless outreach team because no doubt we will see more homelessness over the long term given the pandemic. It's already happening. Yeah, that's right. Dave, thanks so much for being with us. Anytime, Ryan. Thank you. Dave Sachs, city reporter for Denverite, which is part of CPR News. And you can read more of his reporting at denverite.com. Most students in the large school district that serves Grand Junction are back in the classroom, but nearly 3,000 are learning online, and that's about twice as many as the district expected. CPR's Dina Sieg reports it's a struggle for teachers. When science teacher Mike Pewters began the school year from his kitchen table, he immediately faced two pressing challenges. Navigating complex, brand-new curriculum software and figuring out how to teach more students than he'd ever had, about 250. It's triage. It's Apollo 13. Remember, that's the space mission where everything keeps breaking. So we're going to fix one thing after the next. (laughs) We're going to survive. We'll get through it. And then eventually it'll get better. The district is adding two more online high school science teachers, expected to cut class sizes in half. So now we can do better, you know, reaching out to the students. To get extra teachers for online learning, the district had to take some out of the classroom after school started. Rick Peterson is the president of the Mesa Valley Education Association, which acts like a union for District 51. He says that for the teachers who were moved, it was a wrenching change. I don't think you're going to have to look too far to find online teachers who are going to have great reservations about how things are going. Same goes for many parents, says Superintendent Diana Serco. They believe we should have been able to predict more than we could. The district's predicted online enrollment was based on surveys sent to parents in July. But a lot of families changed their minds. Because some parents, until they know what your plan is, they don't know whether they're going to do online or face-to-face. And Serco says no one in education has ever dealt with a situation like this. But even as unsettled as this semester's start has been, science teacher Mike Pewters says a big part of his job remains the same. Yes, days at the computer can be draining. But then you have a student that says something like, wow, I never learned this before. This is really cool. Or thank you so much for helping me out. That always brings you back. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News.
There's a political spotlight on Colorado's third congressional district this year. With no incumbent in the race, Democrats are working to take back this seat, and Republicans are under pressure to keep it. CPR's Caitlin Kim talked with voters in the district about the candidates and the issues. 1,885. That's the number of miles I put on the rental car driving around the third congressional district. It gives you an idea of its sheer scale. It encompasses the western slope and curves like a hook in the south to catch Pueblo and a little bit of the eastern plains. From ritzy mountain ski towns to steel and energy communities to rural farms, the district is a political hodgepodge. Just take a listen, starting in Durango with Dan Street. For me, what's going to determine my vote is largely how the U.S. is viewed in the international stage and whether or not we're investing our money in appropriate ways. Adam McGee and Gunnison. Um, abortion and uh, border security. Um, and probably this COVID crap. It's driven by fear. Or Heather Hafner of Glenwood Springs. Women's rights, I think, is something that is still being overlooked. Um, minority rights is still being overlooked. I'd like to see health care accessible for everyone. Luce Aredia of Alamosa. Freedom, number one. Um, Guns mean the right to defend yourself. I'm from another country, and I know what it, it is to lose your freedom of defend yourself. And Stacy Dickerson of Carbondale. Education, health care is huge. The huge discrepancies in wealth and poverty is a major problem. I mean, the list goes on. That's the main challenge of this district. Its political views are as diverse as its landscape. In the northwest corner of the state, you can find the staunchly conservative town of Craig. Agriculture and fossil fuels are the economic engines, and conservative values rule at the ballot box. Kirsty McPherson has called Craig home for most of her life. She's a behavioral economist and business owner, unaffiliated, but typically votes Republican, and she knows what she's looking for in a candidate. What is going to be best for my business, my employees, my community? Think fiscally conservative. You know, less taxes, less regulation. But what makes this election season a bit more difficult for her is she also considers herself socially liberal. McPherson voted for Republican Lauren Boebert in the primary and is fairly certain she will again. And I think people are ready for something new and something different. Um, I also worry about what people think new and different actually are when it comes to politics. I think there's a very large education gap around what politicians can actually do, how things get deadlocked. Whatever happens, CD3 gets new this fall. Neither Boebert or her Democratic opponent, Diane Mitch Bush, have ever held federal office before. Just an hour to the east is the ski resort town of Steamboat Springs, where Mitch Bush has been running a virtual campaign from her home. Thank you all so much for being here. And now we get to the fun part, question and answer. Steamboat yeah, local Democrat Judy McGinnis plans on voting for Mitch Bush. She was a county commissioner. She was our local representative in the Colorado State House. She's smart. She's not in anybody's pocket. McGinnis knows Bobert too, mostly for her signature issue, the Second Amendment. Bang, 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 bang. <laughs> uh, it blows my mind. It blows my mind. The, the woman who won the Republican nomination, it just, I, I, who is voting for people like this? Bobert's unabashed embrace of President Trump and guns may be raising eyebrows among Democrats, but it's made her beloved in conservative circles. She's not a policy wonk. It's her personal story of escaping poverty to become a small business owner that resonates. And Republicans also like that Boebert doesn't hold back. 
Republican Pat McGee of Gunnison. We want someone that's maybe uh, a little more outspoken, a little more fire in her gut. And I think that's what she brought. Lauren Boebert has learned a lot from Trump's rise to the presidency. Paul DeBell is assistant political science professor at Fort Lewis College in Durango. He says Boebert has followed Trump's political style. And is using a lot of that same sort of powerful messaging of being very media savvy and very savvy with the conversation happening to help propel herself as the Trump candidate. On the other side, he says Mitch Bush is betting voters want something different, experience and calm. Mitch Bush is clearly trying to say, I'm the I'm sort of the proven problem solver. I'm pragmatic. I'll listen to all sides. I have the sort of policy background and understanding to really affect change. DeBell says candidates in District 3 have to account for something else, too. Voters who see the big political divide in the state not in terms of Democrat versus Republican, but rural versus urban. And that's what farmer Mike Mitchell is interested in. The Republican from Monta Vista came to a Boebert event to learn more about her and what she would do for rural Colorado. Don't wait for someone to give you, a, give you permission. That invitation may never come. You need to show up. The small, the small people in rural Colorado, it's important that somebody's out there, a voice. Colorado's swayed so much urban ideals, and it's not always what is important for the rural people out there trying to make a living. Still, in the more progressive parts of the district, like Carbondale and the Roaring Fork Valley, concerns are drawn from the headlines. Renee Sherman is a registered Republican, but has voted across party lines. I think the most important thing is dealing with this COVID crisis and getting that handle on it, and, um, you know, in a positive way is the most important thing. I, I unfortunately was laid off because of COVID. She's busy looking for work, but it's been hard. Sherman says she's not political. She grew up in the area and is also disappointed to see how little is being done to address the current drought and wildfires. But it just feels like now that nobody even cares. We're still watering our lawns, and so that's a big thing for me. And climate change, which is causing a lot of this, and our fires. And so I think, you know, anybody that really is in tune with the environment, I'll, will get my vote. Sherman knows she won't be voting for Trump or for Senator Cory Gardner. She doesn't know enough about the candidates to decide about the CD3 race just yet. Back in Craig, Ryan Hess also doesn't know who he'll support. The city council member is unaffiliated and a self-proclaimed political nerd. He says for all that people claim to want someone who can get along and compromise, he sees a different dynamic at play. And now I think the expectation is I throw my guy in the ring, you throw your guy in the ring, and whoever comes out the the victor is, is what you want. So you want the person that's hitting the hardest. And that doesn't necessarily make the best public policy. But for him, policy will be what helps him decide. He plans to do more research on the candidates' positions before casting his ballot this fall. I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. I bet you'll recognize the tune we're about to play, a familiar one to classical music fans and TV audiences, but done here in a less familiar way. This is a percussion arrangement of Hoedown from Aaron Copland's Rodeo. Drums are often added flavor in classical music, but they're the main dish here, just as they are in the music career of Justin Dote, who arranged this pandemic-era piece.
Dote, a Denver native, won the solo percussion competition at the Aspen School of Music. He has performed with orchestras in Boulder and Fort Collins. And while earning degrees in percussion performance, he survived multiple bouts with leukemia. Justin, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I understand your father was a drummer too, but a a point came in his life when he just couldn't bring the percussive instruments with him. Tell us that story. Yeah, um, he started out as kind of a rock hair drummer. And after being enlisted into the Navy, he couldn't bring his drums on the ship, so he decided to take up the guitar. And to this day, he plays guitar. Uh, He played for us when we were little children. So drums have always been kind of a a big deal to him. He's always had drums around, so it's been easy to play. So did you hear him play drums when you were a kid, or had he given them up by that point? No, he had just an amateur pathway with with the drums and a rock band. Um, So he kind of gave it up, but... You know, he always had bongos and a drum set sitting around. Bongos. This must have been very enticing as a kid. Yeah. Were you allowed to play with them? Yeah, I was allowed to play with them a lot. That's about the only drum we had until he started realizing I was a little bit more serious with it. And uh, actually, he joined one of the CCJA Colorado jazz groups yeah. um, as a an adult jazz drummer. So he and I kind of studied jazz drumming together, which is kind of cool. CCJA, the Colorado Conservatory for the Jazz Arts. You graduated from Denver School of the Arts. And originally, I understand you were studying trumpet there. What what shifted you to percussion? After getting to the school for trumpet, I couldn't get my lips to my embouchure to work correctly. What do you think that was a function of? You know, I don't... <laughs> Everybody's face is different. Maybe my face wasn't right for the trumpet. A lot of people tell me I have the personality of a trumpet player, which is, (laughs) I don't know if that's an insult or a compliment, but I did play trumpet, so I enjoyed it. I just had to switch to a different instrument that I could really play on. It's so funny because I took trumpet for a while and I couldn't deal with the spit. I just thought the spit was so gross. (laughs) There's less of that with drums. Oh, it gets everywhere. Yeah, it gets everywhere. Percussion can be quite melodic, of course, with instruments like the marimba. Bach's Allegro in A minor, performed and arranged by our guest, Justin Dote. Justin, the marimba is quite large. What, what's it like to lug it around for performances? It's kind of an ordeal. It gets easier once you start doing it a lot. They break down pretty easily so you can fit it into a small SUV, but they do <laughs> range from three feet to six feet. It's a large piece of equipment. I have to say, I have always found the marimba meditative, sometimes otherworldly sounding. What senses does the marimba conjure up in you, Justin? Uh, The marimba has always been a very calm, uh, placid sound. So when I played it, I I got into all this music that had all this repetition, ostinato in it, and it was very relaxing. Um, But it can also be very aggressive and expressive, depending on what timbre you produce from the type of mallet, uh, the type of yarn. It gets really complicated, the type of wood. Uh, the range of the instrument, 
the higher range you can play a little bit more aggressively. The lower range you can play almost sound like a chorale singing. Mm. So while you were studying percussion performance in New York City, you were diagnosed with leukemia and you took a break from school, were hospitalized for a time. Is it possible to stay connected to music during treatment? Sure. You know, during treatment of this caliber, I kind of wish I had a different instrument every day in the hospital because it was in kind of an unending battle. And I think a lot of people can relate to this now of staying in one place for an elongated amount of time. Mm. The one thing that I did, percussion doesn't work in a hospital room, obviously, (laughs) because you have people next door and then doctors trying to do their jobs, trying to save lives. It doesn't work. So I had a drum pad and a, a little electric piano that I would just mess around on, but nothing on the lines of getting better as a musician. Um, the one cool thing, cool project that I did, that's also really cool. If you want to try this at home, listen to a completely new album with sound cancellation headphones from start to finish. And what I did was I took a different day of the week. Monday would be big band jazz. Tuesday would be like a funk rock day. And then Wednesday would be a classical symphonies and so on. And I would just pick a different album and listen to it. Give me an example of an album you listened to while in treatment for leukemia that you might not have considered listening to prior to that. Sure. Um, Bluegrass is something that I didn't really know a whole lot about. I got into Goat Rodeo. It was very famous in Colorado. Oh, the Goat Rodeo sessions with the likes of Chris Thiele, Yo-Yo Ma, Edgar Meyer. find that this was, one, something to look forward to, and therefore motivation in treatment, and did you find the music itself healing? Yeah, it was, you know, picking a different album and listening to start to finish, you don't always enjoy what you're looking for, but there's something interesting that happens to your mind when you completely meditate and shut the world out for an hour and a half every single day, and sort of picking a new album was kind of an eye-opener and an enlightening meditative experience for me. Are you still doing it? I am, yeah. You know, in our old apartment when quarantine started, I started doing this on and off. And it was great because I couldn't really practice a lot of percussion in our tiny apartment because (laughs) of the, you know, neighbors and just trying to keep the peace with everyone because everyone's home now. So it's, it's really hard to, you know, bang cymbals out every day. I had never thought about the difficulties of pandemic percussionism. You recently released a performance of Copeland's Rodeo, which we heard in the introduction. How did this come together? So when quarantine started, uh, my teacher, John Kinsey, who's the director of Lamont School of Music's Percussion Ensemble, proposed that we do a remote performance because we've seen all these universities put out all these performances of their, you know, the end of the year concert because I can't literally physically be present to perform that concert. So we played this small piece 
because it was easy to put together. There's people that had keyboards at home. Yeah, it was it was great. It came together really nicely, and I'm really happy that he proposed it. Lamont School of Music at the University of Denver. I'm curious, if you don't mind my asking, how, how your health is and how your headspace is. Oh, health is great. It's always a challenge to go back every six months. The scare of possibly going back into treatment is always there for every cancer survivor. Um, it's a little different for some people that, you know, surgically remove their cancer. But um, because mine's a blood form, it's, you know, it's all over me. So it's, it cannot mm. be removed simply. Um, so... That's always a difficult thing to deal with, but the one thing that I'm doing for my mind and my body is generating a smoothie every day, which I know it sounds kind of silly to like drink a smoothie <laughs> to stay healthy, but it's really important, especially now because you need to keep your immune system up. I, smoothies are just a fun food, too. I, I, smoothies are so much more fun than eggs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can also throw an egg in there, but it's kind of gross. <laughs> well, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Justin Dote recently performed Copeland's Hoedown with the Lamont Percussion Ensemble, distanced, of course. You can watch it on my Twitter feed at CPRWarner. Still to come, we pull out another retro cookbook from the kitchen shelf. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Policing, as we know it, has been shaped by the war on drugs, which, by the way, is still happening today. We're in a moment of people questioning the institution of policing. People who work and believe in drug policy reform should not see this as something that is separate from them. The intersection of legal weed and policing on the latest episode of On Something. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. It's not every day someone cooks something for us. But Jane Mannon of Divide, Colorado, west of Colorado Springs, well, she scared us up a little treat. I made dark chocolate potato brownies. Dark chocolate and potatoes. That's not a pairing that I would necessarily dream up. Uh, Certainly not, which, of course, made the the recipe much more intriguing. But, you know, I, I feel like... If you got chocolate, you got potatoes, you probably can't go too wrong because they're both two of my favorite things. <laughs> the recipe comes from a charming 1980s cookbook called simply Potatoes, all caps with an exclamation point, sponsored by the San Luis Valley Potato Administrative Committee. And it's the latest selection in our series, The Kitchen Shelf, digging up old recipes from Colorado community cookbooks. So I wondered if Jane Mannon had tasted her potato chocolate brownies yet. I have. Describe um, describe how... It's good. Yeah. It's, it's got an interesting texture. I thought that the brownies would be a little bit more fudge-like, a little bit more chewy, and it's really a little bit more cake-like. Oh. But they're very good. I mean, we're talking carbs here, right? You can't go wrong. 
Exactly. That's kind of my feeling. (laughs) Now, you may think Idaho when you think potatoes, but southern Colorado's San Luis Valley is the second largest potato growing region in the country. More than 150 families farm spuds in the area. I couldn't resist playing a snippet of the Potato Committee's promotional video from their website. The voiceover is my favorite part. Potatoes. They've been your mealtime companion since you were a kid. You know how to cook them. You definitely know how to eat them. And you may think that they couldn't surprise you. But the people of Colorado's San Luis Valley beg to differ. You see, some of the You get the point. Let's stick with the cookbook. Now, on the cover are several of the prepared recipes. Potato bread, a potato salad, and then I love that one basket is just raw potatoes. (laughs) Just raw potatoes, yes. And you have craved these potatoes year in and year out, huh? Oh, yes. I love fresh potatoes. And very disappointingly, I don't get them in our grocery stores around here. So anytime I can get somebody to bring me potatoes from the valley, I, I do it. Looks like this cookbook comes from 1986, and the kitchen counter in the cover photo gives away the timing. It's like this tile kitchen top that looks like the one I grew up with. And the recipes are really a product of that time as well. There's lots of of recipes with cans of cream of mushroom soup and powdered French onion dip mix. Oh my gosh, speaking of my childhood... Yeah. How about another oh, yes. <laughs> another recipe that stands out to you? Well, what I love, they give you a, a recipe for baked potatoes, which I guess I, I always thought might be kind of intuitive and, <laughs> and the basic mashed potatoes. But then they also give a quick fix potato idea. Boil as many potatoes as you need in a week with their skins on. Cool potatoes and remove the skins. Store in the refrigerator in a large plastic bag or covered plastic bowl. Use the potatoes throughout the week in any recipe calling for cooked potatoes. A real time saver if your family likes potatoes and you don't have time to fix them. Have you ever done this, cooked your weekly potato supply in advance? I have not. <laughs> I, 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 um, I, I don't know that I eat, you know, that I think that far ahead to know what I'm going to eat throughout the week. But by golly, they've, they've got it in the cookbook. We will post the basic baked potato recipe to CPR.org. I like that it includes slim baked potato toppings. So instead of sour cream, you could use yogurt, lemon pepper. That's, that actually kind of sounds good. What do you like on a baked potato? I use ranch salad dressing on a baked potato, and I see see that they don't list that here in the slim baked potato toppings. (laughs) Are you part of the cult of ranch? Uh, You know, only for potatoes. I, you know, grew up with that on my salads, but uh, at this point, only for baked potatoes. Well, let's go back to these dark chocolate potato brownies that you cooked. Are they fairly easy? How, How was it? They include chopped nuts, four eggs, and a cup of mashed potatoes. It is an easy recipe. Of course, you know, you can't use mashed potatoes that are left over from dinner that you've added salt and butter to. So I did have to cook up a couple potatoes. The recipe calls for four squares of unsweetened chocolate. And I wasn't really sure what that meant. And so when you look online, 
a square of chocolate is actually one ounce. And so that was well over four squares of the bar that I had, but I used four ounces of chocolate and then used butter instead of margarine. Margarine was the suggestion, huh? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Again, a product of its time. It reminds me of the kind of cookbook that you would get from a from a church where everybody brings in their favorite recipe. There's one for a San Luis Valley potato soup. Will you provide us that recipe too for the soup? The soup, the San Luis Valley potato soup calls for four medium to large potatoes, two medium onions chopped, two slices of bacon chopped. Again, you can't go wrong with potatoes and bacon. <laughs> two large celery stalks, uh, water, salt, butter, and milk. And you kind of put it all together in a kettle and cook until the potatoes are tender. I mean, this potato soup recipe, that, that just sounds perfect with winter coming. It does. And they have a, uh, a crock pot. If using a crock pot, do not add the milk until just before serving. So that's perfect. Jane, thank you so much for sharing potatoes! Exclamation mark with us. <laughs> you are so welcome. You're my little potato. You're my little potato. You're my little potato. They dug you up. You come from underground. Jane Mannon of Divide, Colorado, sharing her tuber cookbook with us. There are recipes for potato brownies, baked potatoes, and that potato soup at CPR.org. And if you have a Colorado community cookbook to share for our series, The Kitchen Shelf, take a picture of the cover and tweet me at CPR Warner. You can also email Colorado Matters at CPR.org. You're my little potato. You're my little potato. Dug you up. You come from underground. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.